Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible lets you pick from thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. Free book, and maybe I can afford a better map editor. <laughs> maybe. Since our series is about a small, dangerous nation at war with several larger ones, today's recommendation is Six Days of War, June 1967 and the Making of the Modern Middle East by Michael Oren. This is a sober, balanced account of Israel's war against Egypt, Syria, and Jordan that changed the face of the modern Middle East, as the book says. And it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1866. The place, South America. The armies of the Triple Alliance have crossed into Paraguayan soil. The battles of 1866 will leave deep scars on four nations, as their soldiers disappear into the maze of swamps and marshes and rivers that come to be known as the Funnel of Death. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 49, the Paraguayan War Part 3, The Funnel of Death. Guys, we are at the midpoint of this saga, and in many ways, it's the climax. This is the big battle episode, the campaigns of 1866, including, drumroll please, the Battle of Tuyuti, the largest battle in South American history. This is part three of the Paraguayan War series, kicking off phase two of the war, as the Triple Alliance invades Paraguayan territory to achieve the submission of this landlocked little country. And as we will see, easier said than done. Today's episode contains a lot more of the cut-and-thrust operational battle narrative than the last two episodes, and hopefully you can follow along. Again, I always have maps, and they're always super helpful. But I also know lots of people listen to podcasts while exercising or working or driving, so I will do my best to describe geography and terrain and who was on the left versus the right, but I think I've done pretty well so far, and I hope to keep doing so. Alright, so before we get too psyched about the battles that would shake South America, we need to do a quick recap. In episode 47, the Paraguayan War Part 1, The Rivers of Destiny, we were introduced to Paraguay, a small, landlocked, deeply strange little country in the heart of South America. Paraguay was authoritarian, centralized, and extremely nationalistic. This was in sharp contrast to the Empire of Brazil and the Argentine Republic, much larger countries that were full of internal weaknesses and political strife. And Uruguay was pulled back and forth between them in a power struggle over who would control the Rio de la Plata, the rivers of destiny that held the future of South America. Paraguay's dictator, Francisco Solano Lopez, was a megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur. In 1864, he made the very unwise decision to insert his country into the struggle over Uruguay. For many reasons, none of them good, Lopez launched Paraguay into war, first with Brazil, then with Argentina. 
This war pitted tiny but powerful Paraguay against Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, who joined forces under the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. In episode 48, the Paraguayan War Part 2, The Triple Alliance, we continued that story. We talked about Paraguay's offensive into Argentinian and Brazilian territory, an offensive with a lot of energy but no objective. We discussed the militaries of all these countries, along with their strengths and weaknesses, mostly weaknesses. Then we followed the course of Solano Lopez's offensive. Thanks to Allied superiority in resources and Lopez's extremely bad leadership, the Paraguayans met with disaster. First, their navy was crippled in the Great River Battle of the Riachuelo, ensuring Allied naval superiority for the rest of the war. Second, Lopez's land offensive was shattered in the Battle of Yate and the Siege of Uruguayana. Now it was the Allies' turn to go on the offensive. We left off last week with the Allied armies gathering along the Piranha River, ready to invade Paraguay. Francisco Solano Lopez and the Paraguayan army stood ready to receive them. And that is where we left off. If you don't remember any of that, you may want to backtrack a bit and listen to Paraguayan War Parts 1 and 2. If not, let's get rolling. The battlefields of glory, legend, and tragedy await us in the funnel of death. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff going on. Today's a very violent episode. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources and some wonderful custom-made, very useful maps will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. Link in the description. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. The Paraguayan War is the big one for the four nations that fought in it. Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. It is the defining conflict of their military histories and a pivotal chapter in their national histories. Streets and art and literature and monuments across South America pay tribute to the heroes and villains and myths of this war. We will discuss the echoes of this conflict in Part 5, but today, we need to talk about the battle. Whenever we talk about military history, the battle, the big engagement, always draws the most attention. Way back in my first series on the Jacobite Wars, almost two years ago now, I talked about the Battle of Culloden. One of my big points when I talked about that battle was that it wasn't decisive. It didn't change the course of the war. Culloden was important for how people remembered it, for the mythology and legends and tragic heroism that became part of its story. This is a running theme in this podcast— How we remember our history is at least as important as the history itself. Today's episode focuses on the legendary battles of the Paraguayan War, as the Triple Alliance invaded Paraguay itself in 1866. The largest armies ever assembled in South America fought the largest battles ever fought in South America, and none of them were decisive, didn't change the course of the war but they etched themselves into national memory, becoming part of a collective narrative for the men and women who fought and died there. A great struggle can bring a nation together, and a great sacrifice can do the same. National glory is a bonding experience. So is national grief. Because great battles like Culloden or Waterloo or Gettysburg or Normandy, or like Estero Bellaco and Tuyuti and Boqueron and Curupaiti, They aren't just stories of glory and honor and memory. 
They are places where the blood soaked the earth on a terrifying scale. And the legends and myths of these battles don't focus on the objective military history. They focus on the subjective experience of the soldiers and their sacrifices. As Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, their last full measure of devotion that hallowed the ground. The Paraguayan War's causes and objectives we've discussed, they fall into moral shades of gray. Neither side comes off looking very good in the long run. But the great battles of 1866 tell another story. Martyrdom, sacrifice, shared trauma. Objectively, the war might have been futile and pointless, but subjectively, it became more. I'm going to introduce a phrase, a phrase that I'll repeat and will come back in the last episode of this series. In this war, four countries sacrificed their best young men on the altar of the nation. No cause could justify such a massive sacrifice. Not really but maybe the sacrifice could justify the cause. The sacrifice that justifies the cause. Maybe when your nation has given so much, lost so much, the war becomes self-justifying. If we stop now, they died for nothing. The sacrifice that four nations make in 1866 helps to create those same nations, justifies their causes, justifies their existence, conceals the cynical nature of the war with the tragedy of the slain. The trauma of war, not its glory, became the shared experience that unified some nations. The best and bravest always die first in the great battles of history. Today, we will continue the story of the Paraguayan War. This episode, part three of the series, will begin the second phase of the war, the Triple Alliance's invasion of Paraguayan soil. We will follow the Allied armies as they collide with the Paraguayan army in bloody dramatic battles in the fields and swamps of Paraguay itself. We will see the Allies in Paraguay consider, then throw away, a chance for peace. And we will end the episode on a somber note as both sides realize what this war will cost to win even as they also decide that it will cost them much more to lose. And I will tell you why it matters in part five. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because there will be multiple big battles in today's episode, you will need breaks. These are your chance to pause, break out the Halloween decorations, pull out your winter stuff, do the thing you need to do. So grab your rosary, whisper a prayer, fix your bayonet, and step into the bloody, waist-deep water of the Bañado. The sound of guns, of history, of martyrdom, awaits you in the funnel of death. Let's go back on campaign. It was summer in South America, and the banks of the Piranha River swarmed with soldiers. The armies of Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay gathered near the Argentine river town of Corrientes, where they stared north across the river at the Paraguayans staring back. The Allies prepared to invade Paraguay, and Francisco Solano Lopez prepared to receive them. Argentine President Bartolomé Mitre still commanded the Allied army. Despite his military experience, Mitre was at heart less of a soldier and more of a statesman. 
He did a good job maintaining the alliance, managing the war effort, organizing the army, taking care of politics back home. All that was good, but when it came time to actually fight, his weaknesses would become apparent. The 40,000 Brazilians made up over half the Allied army. Their commander was the silver-haired general Manuel Luis Osorio, known for his skillful leadership and legendary courage. One observer said, Horse after horse has been shot under him, and the soldiers declare that he bears a charmed life and shakes the bullets out of his poncho after battles. Osorio is like the Brazilian version of George Patton, Brazilian blood and guts. There were 24,000 Argentines. Half of them were reluctant recruits from the provinces, often conscripts, who still didn't see themselves as part of the nation. The other half were from Buenos Aires, full of national idealists, boys like Captain Domingo Sarmiento, son of the Argentine ambassador to the United States. The 21-year-old Dominguito, as he was known, was a sensitive young man who wrote constant letters to his worried mother. The children of the Porteño elite, the future of their nation, led Buenos Aires' battalions. Uruguayan President Venancio Flores led 7,000, mostly Uruguayans. Lots of them were actually conscripted Paraguayan POWs, and predictably, these guys kept deserting across the river. They didn't do well across the river sometimes because Lopez tended to execute them because he thought they were all spies. Colonel Leon Palleja, commander of the Uruguayan Florida Battalion, was still trying to get supplies from the uninterested authorities back in Montevideo. After six months, his men had finally gotten boots, but they still didn't have knapsacks. So the Allied camps were packed with almost 70,000 men, along with untold numbers of camp followers. This meant that diseases like dysentery and diarrhea became a problem very quickly. And if that didn't kill you, the wildlife would. A crocodile snuck into the tent of one Brazilian soldier and almost dragged him into the river before his squad mate scared it off. But according to the Brazilian teenage volunteer Dionisio Cerqueira, whose memoir I quote liberally in, throughout this series, the body lice were what he remembered decades later. The Allied soldiers were bored. They played cards, went fishing, or went to Corrientes. The sleepy river port had become a military town with theaters and saloons and gambling joints and whorehouses galore, just like Hinesville, Georgia. <laughs> the soldiers of the Triple Alliance drilled for hours, drank themselves stupid, played guitars, swatted away insects, and waited. They waited almost six months, from November 1865 to April 1866. When would the invasion begin? What was taking so long? One big holdup was logistics. The largest army in South American history required tons of supplies to be steamed up the Piranha River, and no one was really experienced in this or had any way to handle it. The Brazilians figured it out pretty fast because they had a professional officer corps. But the Argentine supply system was a fiasco and Uruguay's was non-existent. It took Mitre months to deal with the Christmas lights level tangle of Allied logistics. Another problem was the Navy. The Brazilian Navy was very powerful, and it included several of these newfangled things called ironclads. Remember, it's only four years after the Monitor and the Merrimack from the American Civil War. Ironclads are a thing now. The problem was that every group project needs an actively unhelpful douchebag, and for the Triple Alliance, this was Brazilian Admiral Joaquim Lisboa, Marquis of Tamandare. 
Tamandare was arrogant, dramatic, petty, and stubborn. Even as his navy sat waiting in Corrientes, waiting for his orders, Tamandare was still down in Buenos Aires, enjoying the nightlife. Mitre wrote letter after letter trying to get the admiral to do his freaking job, but Tamandare refused to let his navy do anything until he showed up in person. And he was too well-connected in Brazilian society, especially the ruling liberal party, to be fired. Tamandare had connections, so he couldn't, they couldn't get rid of him. The final problem was that the war was getting unpopular. Public support had been high during the Paraguayan offensive, but now that the immediate threat was gone, lots of people thought maybe it was time for peace. Most Uruguayans didn't see the point in their country even being in the war, which, fair, what is Uruguay getting out of this? Mitre still hoped the war could weld the Argentine nation together, but lots of his people hated the Brazilian alliance and saw the war as futile. Brazil had started out uber-patriotic back in 1865, but this was fading, as it always does, and the liberals and conservatives were back to party politics as usual. Dom Pedro's influence kept Brazil united. For now. So from 1866 onward, the Allies had to deal with war weariness. Argentina and Uruguay probably would have dipped and made peace already. Like, we, we got rid of Solano Lopez's invasion, we're no longer under threat, this war doesn't need to continue. If not for the Treaty of the Triple Alliance, they could only make peace if all three nations agreed and Brazil was still out for blood. So they were all in this to the end, like it or not. Still they hesitated, like a kid trembling at the edge of a pool on the cusp of invading Paraguay. If the Allies had problems, <laughs> the Paraguayans had bigger ones. For one thing, they were running into very, very serious manpower issues already. Lopez had conscripted most of the young men at the outset of the war, and a lot of these guys were already gone. Uh, one of our main sources gives us an idea. Captain Juan Centurion was a young, educated Paraguayan officer on Lopez's staff, and his memoirs provide valuable information about the Paraguayan high command during the war. Centurion believed that out of its original 70,000 men, by early 1866, the Paraguayan army had lost half. Some had been killed, captured, or disabled by wounds, but as always, disease was the big killer. Dysentery, measles, and smallpox were dropping men left and right. The army's medical services were absolutely unprepared for this, and bad logistics meant that the soldiers were also malnourished. Don't know if you know this, it's hard to get over a sickness when you aren't eating enough. British doctor George Masterman basically said, you know, boss, we got to actually feed these soldiers if you want them to stop getting sick. Lopez replied, If you as a doctor have no better advice to give than that, do not come to me again. So it's only 1866, and Paraguay's attrition rate is really high, and the quality of the new recruits was rough. They were clearly a bit too young, or a bit too old, or a bit too disabled. Some were so weak they could barely hold their muskets. Lopez even took a political risk by calling up the young men of the Asuncion elite, who became a crop of eager but inexperienced young officers. When their mothers and wives saw them off, they had to hide their faces, because Lopez had banned crying in public. Yep, he banned crying in public. As crazy as he's been, guys, he will get worse. 
Lopez was growing more paranoid, more ruthless. The stupid dictator shenanigans were metastasizing. His spies were on the lookout for any hint of defeatism, and executions became common for even saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. The worse things looked, the harder Lopez tightened his grip on Paraguay. Lopez took personal command of the 35,000 men facing the Allies. The Paraguayan defenses centered on the river town of Paso de la Patria, right across from Corrientes. British engineer George Thompson designed the trenches and earthworks, and set up heavy guns to resist any attack by the Brazilian Navy. The soldiers listened to Lopez give rambling speeches in Guarani. One weird thing about Lopez, no matter how bad he was, and he was, and he would get worse, he always, somehow, had a connection with his soldiers. They genuinely seemed to like him. So Paraguay was outnumbered, outgunned, running low on manpower and resources, the economy was tanking, and the dictator was more insane by the minute. It already looked really bad. It was really bad. But Lopez believed that Paraguayan discipline, morale, and especially willpower could overcome the Allied material advantages. And this wasn't entirely delusional. If the Triple Alliance split up, if Argentina fell apart, if Brazil went broke, or if the Allies just lost the will to continue the war, those were all very real possibilities in 1866. Lopez didn't have to win. He just had to convince the Allies that their cause wasn't worth the sacrifice. Lopez gambled that his will and Paraguay's will were stronger than that of the Allies. And in early 1866, Paraguayan will became crystal clear. On December 3rd, 1865, Lopez, his mistress Eliza Lynch, and their entourage attended Mass in Paso de la Patria. On his way back from Mass, Lopez spotted a few Allied soldiers across the river and told his artillery, hey, take a couple shots at those guys. But when he pulled out his telescope, Lopez noticed the Allied soldiers laughing and making rude gestures in his direction. How dare they? So he sent a few canoes of, full of soldiers in a raid across the river. He watched the raid with his telescope and chuckled at the havoc it caused. So this became his new favorite game. Lopez began to send constant raids across the Piranha River against the Allied camps. The Paraguayan assault forces could be as small as a few dozen or as large as a few thousand. They would cross on canoes, rough up the Allies a bit, then escape back across the river. Their escapes were covered by the guns of Colonel Jose Brugues, Lopez's artillery expert, the guy whose cannon had ambushed the Brazilian ships in the Battle of the Riachuelo. Lopez's new favorite commander supervised the raids. Lieutenant Colonel Jose Diaz was an aggressive, courageous officer with a gift for inspiring his men. The Guarani word was mbarete, just an air of self-confidence that makes people want to follow you, something that's often seen in wartime. Diaz's 40th Battalion, made up of the former Asuncion Police Department, was one of the elite units of the army. And best of all, Diaz always did exactly what Lopez told him, even if it was stupid. So Diaz organized these raids, leading a few of them personally. And Lopez loved the show. He would watch with his telescope from miles away, chuckling at the Allies buzzing around like angry bees. Sometimes these raids turned into full-scale battles. The biggest was on January 30th, 1866, at Cordales, when the Argentines laid a trap for one of these raids. 
Colonel Emilio Conesa prepared an ambush with his Buenos Aires guardsmen and a large force of cavalry behind them. The idea was they would swoop down and destroy Diaz's forces once they got into, into range. Now guys, I don't know if you know this, but one of the things you're supposed to have in an ambush is the element of surprise. But for some reason, right as the Paraguayans were approaching, Colonel Canesa thought it was a great time to give a big motivational speech to his men. And they started cheering, giving away their position immediately. So the Paraguayans were like, hey, hey, there's the enemy. And they started shooting at them. Ambush failed. Welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. The Battle of Cordales turned into a confused mess. Both sides ended up retreating, the Argentines were embarrassed, Diaz lost over half his men, no one really won. Lopez declared victory and gave out a bunch of medals. He does this when anything happens. Overall, these raids did not hurt the Allies much. Captain Centurion thought that they were costly and stupid. Paraguay could not afford these losses. Lopez was wasting lives for what amounted to trolling. This was all true. But the raids did help Paraguayan morale, and the Allies thought they were really, really annoying. Lopez kept poking them in the eye over and over, going, yeah, yeah, come get me. It made the Allied soldiers jumpy, their morale was already low, and this river nonsense was getting old fast. The only thing that could stop these raids was the Allied Navy, which refused to move until Admiral Tamandare arrived. So finally, on February 25th, 1866, Admiral Tamandare arrived at Corrientes, and Mitre was like, Finally! Madre de Dios, let's get moving! But Tamandari wouldn't move until he was good and ready. He started pulling his ships forward very slowly as Mitre basically tapped his foot waiting. Group projects, man. Soon the Navy got a taste of Lopez's trolling too. On March 22nd, Lopez sent one of his few remaining warships, the Gualaguay, on a little joyride. And guess what, guys? It's the return of the bungee canoes. The Gualaguay was towing a chata, a small canoe with a small crew manning a single 68-pounder cannon. The Paraguayan steamship whipped these idiots around in their little suicide boat, plinking away at the Brazilian Navy with their one gun as Lopez watched with his telescope. The, allies, the Allied ships struggled to hit this small, fast-moving target. They might obliterate one canoe one day, but the Paraguayans had more, and guess who's back the next day? This went on for weeks, the Gualaguay and its little bungee canoe buzzing around the Brazilian Navy like a mosquito. It was really stupid. It was also really annoying and even dangerous. On March 27th, a lucky shot from one of these canoes penetrated the gun port on one of the ironclads, mortally wounding Commander Maris Ibarros. Pedro II commented on this death to his friend, the Condesa de Baral. The sad event hurt me deeply. Marisi Bardos was a brave officer and the Condesa should recall him. I believe the ironclads may have drawn too close to the enemy guns without remembering that nothing in this world is invulnerable. These raids didn't change the big picture, but they showed that the Paraguayans were not beaten. Lopez's antics might have been stupid, but at least he was doing something. The Allies were dragging their feet, still trying to overcome their logistical inertia, their high-command drama, and the inherent fragility of their newly-born nations. And they were clearly reluctant to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with their much weaker enemy. In April 1866, Mitre and Tamandare finally started to plan the crossing of the Piranha. 
There were very few good landing sites, most of which were heavily guarded. After lots of arguing and passive aggression and what I can only describe as bitching, they decided to cross near the Paraguayan fort at Itapiru. There was a nearby sandbank called Redencion Island that could provide a staging point. So on the night of April 5th, Brazilian Lieutenant Colonel Villagran Cabrita landed 900 men and a battery of artillery on this island. Lopez ordered an immediate counterattack. So at around 4 a.m. on April 10th, Jose Diaz loaded up 1,300 men on canoes and set out for Redencion Island. They were supposed to have the element of surprise, but when the first Paraguayans approached, the Brazilian sentry was like, hey, you know, who goes there? The response was, we are Paraguayans, come to kill you Negroes. Number one, the Paraguayans were really racist against the Brazilians. They always called them the Cambaes, or blacks, but the way they said it, it was basically the N-word. Number two, guys, we need to talk about this whole element of surprise thing. Colonel Cabrita's defensive fortifications and his artillery proved decisive. By 7 a.m., 640 Paraguayan bodies were stuck in the sand or floating down the Piranha River. Colonel Cabrita was the hero of the day, but only hours after the battle, one of Colonel Bruges's guns killed him with an artillery shell. Ironically, Cabrita had taught artillery tactics to Bruges back in the 1840s, when Brazil and Paraguay were still sort of friendly. Cabrita became Brazil's first great martyr of the Paraguayan War, memorialized to this day as the Brazilian Army's patron of engineers. The Allies were finally ready to cross the Piranha. They had built eight floating docks and enormous rafts to land over 10,000 men in the first assault wave. The obvious landing site would be Itapiru, where the Brazilians had just gained a foothold. But Admiral Tamandares saw that as a diversion for what he thought should be the real landing operation. While Lopez was watching the area around Itapiru, where the battle had just happened, the Allies should steam up a couple miles up the Paraguayan River and land at an undefended beach. And Mitre was like, holy crap, that's a good idea. And it requires you to do something. Tamandare, you, you okay, dude? On the morning of April 16th, 1866, Admiral Tamandare's ships lurched forward, firing their guns at Itapiru. Then they suddenly swerved north up the Paraguay River to their landing site. General Manuel Luis Osorio was the first man on the beach, sword in hand, and thousands of blue-coated Brazilian infantry followed him. The invasion of Paraguay had begun without a shot being fired. They were unopposed on the beach. Osorio, the Brazilian George Patton, was impulsive as usual. He was on horseback within minutes of landing, revolver in hand, leading a reconnaissance of only 12 men into the forest. Soon they collided with a Paraguayan patrol. Osorio directed his squad as musket balls ricocheted around his head. When several battalions of Voluntarios de Patria arrived, Osorio led them in a bayonet charge and routed the small Paraguayan force. Many observers criticized the general for his recklessness, since he was the commander of the Brazilian army within the alliance. Osorio said, I was in charge of an army of inexperienced soldiers, and I felt I had to set an example. When Dom Pedro II heard about this quote, he granted Osorio the title Baron of Erval. Soon the whole Brazilian force was on Paraguayan soil, and Flores led his Uruguayans right behind them. 
Colonel Palleja spent a sleepless night on the beach with his Florida battalion, expecting a Paraguayan counterattack at any minute. He wrote, If Lopez did not attack and repel the disembarked troops, by noon the next day he would face 20,000 men, and it would be too late. And yeah, if Lopez had acted quickly and sent troops to defend the beach in an instant, he could have stopped Osorio's invasion. It could have been like Gallipoli over there. Instead, Lopez froze up, and the opportunity was lost. One of the key defects in Lopez's personality was a lack of empathy. He didn't see other people as real. This is a major flaw in anyone, of course, especially a military leader. You have to be able to get inside your enemy's head and try to guess what they're going to do. That requires you to treat your enemies like real people. Lopez was completely surprised by the Allied landing. He never considered that the Allies might not attack his main defenses at Paso de la Patria. Lopez as a commander had plenty of imagination, but he never believed his enemies capable of the same imagination because he didn't see them as real, as clever, dangerous opponents who might not dance to his tune. It was one of the big flaws that led to so many of his military disasters. Soon the rest of the Allied army landed and Mitre gave orders to surround Lopez's defenses. Paso de la Patria was a very strong position and it would have cost the Allies thousands of men to assault it. But another aspect of Lopez's character was that he was a coward. He never, ever wanted to be within musket range or even artillery range of his enemies. So when he decided he couldn't hold Paso de la Patria, when he realized the Allies were setting up artillery, Lopez just left. He just got on his horse and rode out of camp, and he didn't even tell anybody. Didn't tell his army, his staff, not even Eliza. They all just had to pick up and run after him. The Paraguayan soldiers and camp followers completely looted Lopez's personal possessions before following their leader. Lopez's disorganized retreat opened the door for the Allied invasion. Mitre's army followed their enemy into the triangle of land between the Paraguay and Piranha rivers, a maze of narrow trails connecting the few dry patches amidst a great morass of swamps, floodplains, and dense forests submerged in waist-deep water. We've seen a lot of campaigns in very miserable places in this podcast, and this one is up there. The Allied campaign had one objective. To win the war, the Allies needed to control the Paraguay River. To control the Paraguay, they had to capture Lopez's great fortress at Humaita, 13 miles to the north. But every step of those 13 miles would be measured in blood over the next three years, drawn by the largest battles in South American history. Eighteen sixty-six was shaping up to be a good year for the Triple Alliance. The crossing of the Piranha River, the successful invasion of Paraguay, so far, and Lopez's confused retreat made victory seem imminent. Mitre's reports were optimistic, and so were the newspapers back home. The Buenos Aires Standard proclaimed, Half the campaign is now over. 
the grand feat of crossing the Piranha is accomplished, and the Allies will quickly advance their resistless legions to the last bulwark of Lopez's power, the Fort of Humaita. But this optimism was about to dim very fast. Step one of the invasion, crossing the Piranha, had taken six months. Step two would take much, much longer. This was the capture of Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South. I've been foreshadowing Humaita for a reason. Its guns and battlements dominated the Paraguay River, and remember, the rivers are everything in this war. The only way the Allies could supply their massive army on its invasion was by river transport. So long as Humaita was untaken, the iron hand of logistics would strangle any Allied invasion. Humaita was the key to the river, and that made it the key to Paraguay. The Allies could attack the fortress from the river with their superior navy, but Admiral Tamandare, as usual, was reluctant to try this, and this wasn't just his normal spinelessness. Humaita had a massive chain across the river and batteries of heavy guns overlooking it. Even ironclads would find themselves endangered under such a massive bombardment. This fortress was designed to lock down the river and blow warships out of the water. So if Lopez's fortress couldn't be taken by water, it would have to be taken by land. Humaita was 13 miles from the new Allied base at Paso de la Patria. That's a day's hike, that's easy, right? But those miles consisted of the most miserable terrain imaginable. A giant maze of swamps, ravines called esteros that were constantly in flood, creating nasty floodplains called bañados, full of massive trees and high reeds, swarming with crocodiles, birds, and bullfrogs. The only path through the bañados were sandy causeways called pasos that could barely hold a wagon and could provide natural choke points. And Francisco Solano Lopez saw the terrain for what it was, a maze of choke points and concealed positions and obstacles, perfect defensive terrain where he could grind the Allies down. So this swampy labyrinthine triangle between the Paraguay and Piranha rivers would witness the bloodiest battles in South American history. The first of those great battles came in early May 1866. Shortly after crossing the Piranha, the Allies began to pursue Lopez along his line of retreat. Uruguayan President Venancio Flores led the way with his Army of the Vanguard, consisting of the Uruguayan Army along with some Brazilian and Argentine units. The Uruguayans were in bad shape because their own Allies had stolen all their baggage during the crossing of the Piranha. Colonel Palleja was livid at the neglect of his men. They were short on food, and the supply horses kept dying from the miserable, swampy conditions. This, this whole terrain is really bad for horses. They, they die like flies. Flores's vanguard took position on the heights overlooking the southern branch of the Estero Bellaco, while most of the Allied army assembled back in Paso de la Patria. While Flores held the line, they were organizing for the big push towards Humaita. But Francisco Solano Lopez was never content to play defense. As soon as the Allies advanced, he sent patrols to harass Flores' vanguard. Sharp skirmishes took place on April 26th and April 29th, and this should have tipped Flores off that something bigger was on the way. But Flores, careless and overconfident, failed to guard the crossings of the Estero Bellaco to his front. So when something did happen, no one saw the Paraguayans coming until it was too late. 
Colonel Leon de Palleja was frustrated with the poor condition of his soldiers. The Uruguayan army received very little support from the authorities back in Montevideo. It seemed like they had forgotten about the war and the men fighting it. So Palleja wrote weekly reports to the Montevideo newspapers, trying to show his country just how badly their men were suffering. Palleja sat down to write one of these letters at about noon on May 2, 1866, when he heard a commotion, a lot of yelling, and then gunfire. He looked up to see Paraguayan infantry swarming into the Allied camp. So began the first great battle of 1866, the Battle of Estero Bellaco. Lopez had ordered Colonel Jose Diaz to attack the Allies with about 4,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry, with Colonel Brugues providing artillery support with six guns. And due to Flores's poor security, the Paraguayans just splashed across the fords of the Estero Bellaco and no one saw them coming. So the Paraguayans, for once, had the element of surprise. When Diaz hit, he hit like a truck. Barefoot Paraguayans in bright red uniforms overran the Allied forward lines. Colonel Palleja rallied his Florida battalion and got them in formation just in time. But the other Allied units broke. The Brazilian volunteers shattered and fled, leaving their dead on the ground. The other Uruguayan battalions were torn to ribbons by point-blank musket volleys, and four of their artillery pieces were captured. Only Colonel Palleja and his men stood their ground, virtually alone. Behind the Paraguayan infantry came the cavalry, which smashed into the flank of the 1st Argentine Infantry. The weight of impact drove great gaps in the unprepared foot soldiers, and soon they were falling back as well. President Flores, leading from the front as always, was nearly killed or captured multiple times. Up to this point, the Paraguayan attack had been successful. Their assault had all but smashed the Allied vanguard. But guess what? Lopez had given Diaz orders to attack, but he didn't tell him what the attack was supposed to accomplish. Given how small Diaz's force was, it was probably supposed to be a spoiling attack. Get in, rough them up a bit, and get out. If Diaz had quit while he was ahead and withdrawn with the captured artillery, the battle would have been an easy Paraguayan victory. But Diaz was Lopez's favorite commander for a reason. He was brave, charismatic, and energetic, and completely lacking in independent thought. He always did exactly what Lopez said, so Diaz followed orders and just kept attacking, even as the rest of the Allied army came forward. Mitre and Osorio had been having lunch on a Brazilian steamboat when they heard the sound of guns. Soon both men were leading reinforcements to the field. As Diaz stood his ground, Mitre ordered his Argentines to flank the Paraguayans and cut them off from the river crossings. Osorio led his Brazilians forward with his usual fearlessness, getting a horse shot out from under him. As more Allied soldiers arrived, Diaz realized that his small force was in serious danger. For the next four hours, Diaz's men waged a bloody fighting retreat. The Allied artillery came up to riddle his men with canister, only to be met with counterfire from Brugues' guns. The Argentines almost blocked his escape across the Estero Bellaco, but Diaz's own 40th Battalion led a bayonet charge that drove them back. By 6 p.m., the Paraguayans had escaped, and the Battle of Estero Bellaco came to a close. The battle displayed Flores' weaknesses as a commander. 
Like lots of generals in this war, he had plenty of courage but very little common sense. Mitre criticized Flores for letting himself be surprised, and the two men grew increasingly annoyed with each other as time went on. Ride or die homies no more. One more friendship ruined by a group project. I'm going to remind you of what I said last episode too. There is overall a poor quality of generalship in this entire war. Flores wasn't the worst. He definitely wasn't good, but he wasn't the worst. There's only one really good general in this entire war, and he doesn't show up until the next part of this series. But we'll get to that. Lopez declared victory at the Battle of Estero Bellaco. He always declares victory. He stubs his toe. That's a big Paraguayan victory. In reality, Diaz's recklessness cost him 2,300 casualties, almost half his force. The 1,500 Allied casualties fell very heavily on the small Uruguayan army. Colonel Payeya's Florida battalion paid dearly for its heroic resistance, losing half its men and two-thirds of its officers. The casualties included Payeja's son, Oscar, who was wounded and sent home. The colonel wrote letter after letter back to Montevideo, begging for news of his boy. The battle accomplished nothing. The Allies buried their dead and moved on, the Paraguayans withdrew to their defenses and moved on. The Uruguayan soldiers carried on with a heavy step. The smallest army in the alliance had paid a heavy price at Estero Bellaco, and no one back home seemed to care. It was like their country had abandoned them. Skirmishes continued for the next few weeks, keeping the Allies jumpy, always watching the swamps for another sudden attack. Finally, Mitre was ready to advance. On May 20th, the Allied army marched across the southern arm of the Estero Bellaco onto a swampy plain called Tuyuti. This was one of the only big open areas in the region, sandwiched between the two branches of the Estero Bellaco, the northern and the southern branch. The Allies spread their army out in a semicircle. Osorio and his Brazilian divisions on the left, Flores and his multinational vanguard in the center, and the Argentines on the right. To the north, across the flooded northern arm of the Estero Bellaco, sat Lopez and the Paraguayan army. The Paraguayans occupied a new fortified line designed by George Thompson, who was quickly becoming Lopez's defensive mastermind. It was a trench line several miles long, with artillery bastions and telegraph lines stretching back to Humaita. Lopez's headquarters was three miles behind this line at Paso Puku, where he could see the Allied camp with his telescope, but he wasn't in artillery range. Almost 35,000 Allies and 30,000 Paraguayans faced each other across the Estero Bellaco. They were close enough to see each other's campfires or catch snippets of conversation. Both sides seemed to realize that a big fight was imminent. One way or another, Mitre would have to overcome Lopez's positions to continue towards Humaita. The Paraguayan defenses were extremely strong. Any Allied attack would have to cross the swamps under Paraguayan artillery fire before even getting close to the enemy lines. The Allied commanders pondered this puzzle as their soldiers made camp and waited for word. Lopez had a smaller army and a strong defensive position, so his best bet was to play defense, let the Allies weaken themselves by attacking, and then counterattack. This strategy played to Paraguayan strengths, and probably would have worked. So of course, Lopez decided to attack. 
On May 23rd, he ordered his generals to prepare for an attack the next day against the Allied army on Tuyuti. Captain Centurion saw this as Lopez's worst decision of the war, and it's at least top three. He was giving up all his defensive advantages to launch a frontal attack against a stronger opponent. Lopez's reasoning was that time wasn't on his side, the Allies grew stronger while he grew weaker. If he could deliver a decisive defeat to Mitre's army, maybe even drive it out of Paraguay, that would be a good time to sue for peace. And Lopez also believed that his army's higher morale could prevail over Allied numbers and weaponry, that courage could overcome firepower. But Lopez wasn't really applying reason here. He was just impatient, tired of half-measures and probes and harassment. He wanted the glorious battle that he had always dreamed of commanding, a big dramatic moment worthy of his delusions of grandeur, a great clash of arms that would write his name in history alongside Napoleon's. Lopez's attack would have three prongs. His brother-in-law, General Vicente Barrios, would take 8,700 men down a recently cut path against the Brazilians on the Allied left flank. General Francisco Isidoro Resquin would take 6,300 men, including most of the cavalry, against the Argentines on the Allied right. Finally, Colonel Diaz would lead over 9,000 infantry against the Allied center. All three attacks would begin simultaneously, signaled by the firing of a rocket. Lopez believed that the sheer ferocity of the attack would drive the Allied army out of Paraguayan territory and basically end the war immediately. Lopez was sending 24,000 men, almost 80% of his army, on this all-or-nothing assault. And he committed the best units in his army. The 6th Marine Battalion, the black Paraguayans who had fought at the Riachuelo, the Nambi'i, the 40th Battalion, Diaz's policemen from Asuncion. Almost all his cavalry, including his personal guard, the Akakadeya. These, these guys wore metal helmets topped with the tails of howler monkeys. Akakadeya in Guarani means monkey heads. And all these units were led by young, barely trained officers, the children of the Asuncion elite, the remnants of the old Spanish ruling class. They provided the spirit that Lopez would hurl against the steel of the Triple Alliance. The overall concept of Lopez's plan wasn't great, but as usual, he made everything worse. For one thing, he did zero reconnaissance. No one does reconnaissance in this war. In fact, reconnaissance could be bad for your health. One of Captain Centurion's friends, Dr. Torrance, looked over at Tayuti and said something like, gee, the Argentines look like they're ready for battle. Lopez immediately had Dr. Tordens executed for lowering morale. Don't tell Lopez things he doesn't want to hear. For another thing, Lopez gave instructions to all his generals separately in his tent alone, so none of them knew the whole plan, and of course these instructions were rigid with no room for initiative. We've seen this movie before. Finally, Lopez appointed no overall commander. Remember the chains of command. A commander had to be close enough to observe and react in moments of crisis. But Lopez was a coward. He was too afraid to get close to the battle. So he would stay safe and sound at Paso Puku, three miles to the rear, looking through his telescope, too far back to actually control anything. 
So Barrios and Reskin and Diaz, with no knowledge of each other's plans, would lead three separate frontal attacks against a larger enemy. Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. Lopez made a speech to his men the night before the battle. Tomorrow, the whole army will throw itself on these cowardly scoundrels and exterminate them. No mercy, no pity upon them. I know every one of you will do his duty. Let us defeat them tomorrow, and if needs be, let us die shouting, Long live the Republic of Paraguay! Independence or death! It was morning on May 24, 1866, when a Brazilian patrol was gathering firewood just beyond the Allied lines. They were led by 19-year-old Dionisio Cerquiera, who had just been promoted to lieutenant. Sounds like a great job for a new officer. Hey, LT, take your Joes and go grab some firewood. Cerquiera was supervising. He was leaning against a tree. I'm supervising. When one of his soldiers ran up and whispered, Lieutenant, the woods are full of red-shirted Paraguayans. Cerquiera followed his soldier and was terrified to see literally thousands of enemy soldiers only a few yards away. They clearly saw him, but they didn't move, didn't react. They were waiting for something. Cerquiera was like, <laughs> uh, we're leaving. He led his men quietly back to camp. Just as he ran up to his commander, boss, 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 the Paraguayan signal rocket exploded overhead. Long red lines emerged from the swamps, banners waving. Decorated cavalry rode behind them, lances aloft. Over 20,000 voices screamed. Some sang the Paraguayan national anthem. Some just shouted, Ya ya, ya ya, let's go, let's go. But the Allies had not been caught napping this time. Weeks of Paraguayan harassment had made everyone very jumpy, and they had heard a lot of activity from the Paraguayan lines last night, followed by a sudden quiet this morning. Trigger fingers were itchy. Finally, Mitre had ordered for an armed reconnaissance to take place that day, so most of his units were already under arms. The Allies had around 35,000 men and 93 guns, all fully alert, watching the Paraguayans come out of the trees like a challenger entering the ring. There was a brief pause, like a bass drop. And then it began. The Battle of Tuyuti, May 24, 1866, the largest, bloodiest battle in South American history. The Paraguayans sprinted forward, their red uniforms tattered, their bellies empty and weapons obsolete, still full of that near-suicidal courage the Allies were coming to know. Allied bugles blared as their men dressed ranks, fixed bayonets and loaded rifles. The massive crash of gunfire and screaming like one continuous highway collision and stampeding horses rose like a tsunami. George Thompson remembered, about three minutes after the signal gun was fired, the engagement became general, and the musketry was so well kept up that only one continued sound was heard, which was relieved by the cannonading of the Allies. Now, how I'm going to deal with this battle? Lopez launched a three-pronged attack, so I'm going to deal with this battle in its three prongs, on the Allied left, on the Allied right, and in the Allied center. Okay. General Barrios's men on the Allied left had taken hours to get into position since their path was covered with thorns and the Paraguayans were barefoot. The reason this battle started so late in the day was because everyone was waiting on Barrios to get into position. Now extremely pissed off, his men exploded out of the swamps. 
they were met by the 3rd Brazilian Division, led by the hardened old general Antonio Sampaio. Lieutenant Serquiera stood by his platoon as their rifle volleys crashed into the on-Russian Paraguayans. Lopez's men launched human wave attacks that closed to melee range, and the fighting was bloody and brutal, machetes and bayonets in the marshy, muddy terrain. Sampaio's infantry were driven back, then counterattacked. The battle seesawed back and forth three times over the same ground, leaving mangled bodies trampled and sinking in the mud. The Brazilians had just gotten the upper hand when Paraguayan cavalry exploded into their left flank. The Brazilian infantry units formed squares and blazed away desperately, isolated and nearly surrounded. The 4th Battalion, led by Colonel Pinheiro Guimares, fired over and over into the storm around them. Guimares screamed at his men to keep firing even as he fell wounded. General Sampaio took his place on the firing line, fighting on foot, waving his sword, only to be mortally wounded by three successive musket balls. The men of the 3rd Division, seeing their fearless commander fall, wavered. Just in time, General Osorio arrived with the 1st Division and the Brazilian Cavalry. He led the 1st Division forward, promising each man three months of soldo y cachacha, pay and whiskey. Brazilian blood and guts knew how to motivate soldiers, and to be fair, promising a bunch of soldiers pay and whiskey works just as well today. Osorio's counterattack finally crushed the Paraguayan attack on the Allied left. For their valiant stand, General Sampaio's 3rd Division was remembered as the Divijao Incurasada, the Iron Division. Colonel Guimares reported that at least a few Paraguayan cavalry did break through to the Brazilian camp, only to meet an unexpected opponent in an irate Brazilian camp follower. Apparently this woman just got a random saucepan and drove off a few of Lopez's horsemen single-handedly. On the Allied right, the Argentine army quivered as eight regiments of Paraguayan cavalry erupted from the marshes. The cavalry on both sides in this war were still mostly armed with melee weapons, in contrast to the cavalry of the American Civil War, who fought with gunpowder weapons, revolvers, and carbines. The Paraguayans, unusually, also tended to carry a weapon called the bola. This was a thrown weapon with two stones held together by a rope, which was thrown at the legs of enemy cavalry. It was actually pretty effective. The Paraguayan cavalry plowed forward, scattering a full division of Argentine cavalry with the fury of their charge. Captain Francisco Sieber of the 1st Argentine Infantry watched the enemy horsemen just flood the Argentine artillery, running their crews through with lances. The gunners screamed for the infantry to come help them, but the Argentine foot soldiers seemed almost paralyzed with fear. Finally, a random soldier, identified only as Corporal Gonzalez, broke ranks and sprinted towards the Argentine guns alone. Another man followed, then another. The officers were carried away with their men as the whole line rushed forward with a yell, recapturing the guns. Reminds me of Inkerman from the Crimean War. When the officers fail, the soldiers step up. Argentine infantry and cavalry reserves arrived to stop the Paraguayan charge, and the battle on the right flank dissolved into chaos. The Argentine artillery hammered away indiscriminately, cutting down friend and foe alike. Captain Sieber remembered the visceral glee of the Argentine gunners as they sent metal into the swirling carnage. Men can become drunk on murder and killing. It is a pleasure that at certain moments can be elevated to the sublime. 
Rifle fire from the Argentine infantry drawn up in their large hollow squares nearly annihilated General Reskin's cavalry. The Akakariya were ruined, and only a few managed to escape. Their insane charges left thousands of dead horses and their riders piled in front of the Argentine lines. Some of these Paraguayan cavalry units ceased to exist after this battle. The imagery of cavalry, foundering on the musket fire and bayonets of the infantry squares, is why some call the Battle of Tuyuti the Waterloo of South America. The Battle of Tuyuti is famous in Brazilian military history as the Battle of the Patrons for the three patrons of their combat arms. The mortally wounded General Sampaio became famous as the patron of the infantry. Blood and Guts General Osorio became patron of the cavalry and Diaz's attack on the Allied center ran face-first into the future patron of the artillery. Lieutenant Colonel Emilio Luis Maillet commanded 28 Whitworth and Lajite guns, modern European pieces, overlooking the center of the Allied line. Several days before the battle, he had his gunners dig a massive protective trench in front of them. Known in Portuguese as the Fosso de Maillet, Maillet's Trench, it became the graveyard of the Paraguayan infantry. Diaz led the best Paraguayan infantry units, the flower of the Asuncion elite, into the ranks of Colonel Palleja's Uruguayans. Flores was, once again, almost killed. The Uruguayans fell back stubbornly, taking shelter behind the Fosso de Maillé. Sensing victory, almost 10,000 Paraguayan infantry came screaming up the slope behind them. But now... The Paraguayans learned one of the key lessons that armies had learned on the Crimea, or in the American Civil War. When flesh meets steel, steel wins. Colonel Maillet's guns swept the battlefield like a lawnmower. Their crews kept up a frenzied rate of fire that led, the, led to them being nicknamed the Revolver Artillery, because they were firing so fast. Maillet screamed the words that sealed his place as the Brazilian Army's patron of artillery. Now they shall not enter here. Diaz's men attacked again and again, the cream of the Paraguayan army shredding itself against the Faso de Maillé. His men had to cross the deep Banyado, holding their muskets over water up to their waists, before sprinting into the inferno that awaited them. Soon the marsh was almost saturated with blood and floating bodies. Colonel Palleja watched, horrified, as every blast of canister sent pieces of uniform and pieces of skin and severed limbs flying into the air, sprinkling the defenders with blood. Thompson described the 25th Battalion, full of brand new recruits, heaping itself up like a flock of sheep at the lip of the trench. It was a slaughter. At Tuyuti, the Allied advantages in firepower became crystal clear. And not just the artillery. The Allied infantry, armed with modern Minier rifles, fired farther, faster, and deadlier than the Paraguayans with their old smoothbore muskets. The results littered the field around the Argentine lines, the Brazilian lines, the Faso de Maillé. Lopez launched his attack believing that courage could conquer firepower. And just like at Gettysburg three years earlier, firepower won. Lopez started the day watching the battlefield through his telescope, but it wasn't long before smoke rendered it invisible. So Lopez got bored. He rode off to the rear to have lunch, leaving the battle to fight itself. Captain Centurion stayed at Paso Puku and watched what he could through the smoke as the disaster unfolded. 
Lopez's absence from the battlefield had fatal consequences for his men. He had ordered them to attack, but he wasn't around to tell them to stop. And like good Paraguayans, they obeyed the last order he gave. They attacked over and over and over and over, mindless bonsai charges that did nothing but break their bodies on the fire of Maillet's artillery. By 3.30 p.m., they were too exhausted or too dead to continue, and the Battle of Tuyuti was over. Lopez, miles to the rear, was utterly calm. He seemed almost pleased. As he watched the wounded trickle in, the dictator asked his advisors what they thought. One responded, Sir, it is the greatest battle ever fought in South America. Lopez nodded, satisfied. I think the same as you. Like, yeah, you're right. It is a great battle. Lopez saw Paraguay as an extension of himself, its men expendable, its soldiers' tools to be used as he saw fit, a vehicle for his delusional ambitions and Napoleonic fantasies. So even as his army impaled itself on the Allied guns at Tuyuti, Lopez was content. This glorious battle was all that he'd ever really wanted. As the sun sank on May 24, 1866, Lieutenant Dionisio Serquiera limped around the battlefield. His boots were gone and he had broken his sword in the melee where General Sampaio fell. As he walked back to his own line, Serquiera came upon the body of a childhood friend, a fellow volunteer. He kissed his friend's unmoving face and swapped his broken sword for another after wiping off the blood that coated it. Everyone was stunned by the carnage at Tuyuti, especially the thousands of horses. It was worse right in front of the Fosso de Maillet, where the human remains were pulverized into a mass of limbs and organs. As the days went on, the bodies became so bloated and swollen that they were literally falling apart. Allied soldiers piled up the Paraguayan dead and burned them en masse. Many were so emaciated that their bodies simply refused to burn. The Allies lost around 1,000 dead and 3,000 wounded in the battle, the vast majority Brazilian. The Iron Division alone lost 1,000 men, and Colonel Guimarães' 4th Battalion had taken 60% casualties. The Brazilian Army's performance had been outstanding, and it became the source of many military traditions and honors well into the 21st century. The glory of the victory glossed over the ambiguity of the war and the disappointments that were to follow. It was a sacrifice that justified the cause. Lopez, typically, declared victory. But there was no hiding the magnitude of the disaster. The Paraguayan army was eviscerated at Tuyuti. 6,000 dead and 7,000 wounded, over 50% of the 24,000 engaged. The 6th Battalion, the Black Paraguayan Marines of the Nambi'i, were annihilated. Diaz's 40th Battalion, the Asuncion Police, took 80% casualties. And the sons of the Paraguayan elite had been slaughtered. The British doctor George Masterman reported, 
That battle annihilated the Spanish race in Paraguay. In the front ranks were the males of all the best families in the country, and they were killed almost to a man. Hundreds of families, in the capital especially, had not a husband, father, son, or brother left. There were many tears behind closed doors in Asuncion. After all, Lopez had forbidden crying in public. The only exception was Diaz, who had taken two wounds and who wept openly as he delivered his report. Lopez promoted him to general. I gotta drive this home. This battle was catastrophic. Paraguay lost more killed at Tuyuti than any army in any battle of the American Civil War. 6,000 dead is more than the Allies at D-Day, more than both sides at Antietam, more than the Confederates at Gettysburg, out of a much smaller army from a much smaller country. Almost 1.5% of the entire Paraguayan population died at Tuyuti. The main reason was that the Paraguayans just kept attacking, long after any hope of victory, even after they were wounded. One sergeant, famous story, shot down holding his regimental colors, literally tore the flag apart with his bare hands and swallowed its pieces before he died. The Paraguayans paid for their astonishing courage with astonishing casualties. Their army had suffered a qualitative blow from which it would never recover. Like most Allied observers, Colonel Payeja felt respect and sympathy for his opponent. I look with great pain at the extermination they have suffered in so many repeated and disgraceful battles over this last year, and I ask, why? Because of one man. The Paraguayan soldier deserves a better fate. Tuyuti was the largest and bloodiest battle in the history of South America. But it was not a decisive battle, mainly because the Allies failed to follow up on their victory. Flores and Osorio wanted to counterattack right after the battle, but Mitre refused. And this was sheer incompetence. Lopez barely had any soldiers left standing. This was a golden opportunity for the Allies to crush his army and storm the gates of Humaita. But Mitre let the opportunity slip away. For all his many talents, Bartolome Mitre lacked the audacity and killer instinct of a great general. He was always too cautious, too slow, kind of like George McClellan from the American Civil War. He didn't like to act, he liked to react. He was never willing to act quickly or decisively when an opportunity presented itself. So in the days and weeks after Tuyuti, Mitre did nothing, and this gave Paraguay time to recover. Lopez's recruiting officers scoured their districts, pulling in every able-bodied man they could find. They emptied the jails and brought in slaves from the state plantations. Men with minor wounds found themselves back on the front line. After a couple of months, the Paraguayan army was back up to 25,000 men. Lopez could never replace the quality of the men he had lost at Tuyuti, but they were warm bodies, and that was enough. The inaction of the Allied army and the astonishing ability of the Paraguayan state to make up for its hideous losses meant that Tuyuti was not decisive. It did not change the overall situation, despite all the blood that had been spilled. Still, though, the fact that the war continued after Tuyuti is incredible. Paraguay had suffered devastating defeats. They were hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned and outclassed. 
After the Riachuelo and Tuyuti, the terrible losses on the river and on land, no, they're not going to win. Objectively, Paraguay was screwed. Spoiler alert, the Allies do eventually win this war. There is nothing surprising about that. It's the most obvious outcome. What makes this war truly incredible, one of the most fascinating conflicts I've ever studied, was that Paraguay did fight on for four more years. The Paraguayan War was stalemated. For over three months after Tuyuti, the Allied army just sat, making no offensive moves whatsoever. Mitre didn't even bother reconning the Paraguayan positions, though no one does reconnaissance in this war. His excuse was logistics, especially a lack of horses for his cavalry. Now this was a problem. Like I've said, the swamps were super unhealthy for horses, but Mitre exaggerated. In fact, the Allied logistics system was working pretty well. Even the Uruguayans were getting good uniforms. So no, this is one of the only times you'll hear me say this. Logistics wasn't an excuse. Especially since Paraguayan logistics basically amounted to starvation builds character. The truth was, Mitre just didn't know what to do next. And he didn't have the gumption or the will to actually make anything happen. The Allies and Paraguayans occupied long trench lines in the swamps. In some places, they were close enough for both sides to throw trash at each other and yell insults. The Brazilians called the trenches the Lina Negra, the Black Line, because they were literally surrounded by death. Corpses from Tuyuti still rotted in the water, and the smell of decaying flesh was everywhere. This, of course, meant lots of diseases. Dysentery was everyone's best friend once again, and now measles was popping up just to keep things interesting. The sheer filth of the swamps meant that the Allied sick list was climbing fast, and the climate didn't help. The South American winter could be bitterly cold at night, but surprisingly hot during the day, with sandstorms blowing in from the Chaco to the west just to make everyone more miserable. The inaction from the Allies was frustrating to people back home, who had had such high hopes after the crossing of the Piranha. One Buenos Aires newspaper spelled out this frustration. The campaign has entered its second year and led the Argentine Republic into the deepest tragedy, bloodied and exhausted of resources, of gold and credit. Thus far, the engagements have all been massacres without result, save to pile up thousands of killed and wounded, without our advancing a step forward nor breaking the will of an enemy disposed to defend his soil man by man, inch by inch. The Allied will to continue the war was fading, especially in Argentina and Uruguay. How long would it take? How much would it cost? How much would they have to sacrifice to defeat this tiny little nation? For all his faults, Francisco Solano Lopez had the initiative that Bartolome Mitre lacked. Only days after Tuyuti, he was back to his old game of raiding and skirmishing. Lopez tended to send new recruits to the front lines with zero training, with the mindset that experience was the best teacher. This usually meant they just got killed before they learned anything. In other stalemated wars of the era, like the Crimean War or the Civil War, there might be understandings or even brief truces between the two sides. This did not happen in the Paraguayan War. Lopez's soldiers were always aggroed, constantly sniping and harassing the Allied lines. Even after Tuyuti, Paraguayan morale remained extremely high. 
Lopez had his artillery expert, Jose Brugues, now promoted to general, conduct daily bombardments of the Allied camp. These did very little damage, and the Allied soldiers got kind of used to the shelling, giving nicknames to individual guns. Lopez seemed to have it out for Venancio Flores for some reason. He loved watching through his telescope as his gunners tried to hit the tent of the Uruguayan president. This meant that Flores was almost killed basically every day. On June 19th, the Paraguayans scored a direct hit, but Flores wasn't home. He was just out that day. <laughs> I imagine a frustrated Grim Reaper just floating around Flores. Every time another cannonball misses him, he's like, come on, seriously? There was a method to this madness. Again, for all his many faults, Lopez understood the main Allied weakness, their disunity and lack of resolve. There was no chance of defeating the Allies militarily, not after the Riachuelo, not after Tuyuti. But if his constant attacks could erode their will, destroy their morale, break up the alliance, Paraguay might still win. He knew that Argentina and Uruguay were wavering, and the more losses he could inflict, the weaker the Triple Alliance became. But Paraguayan will remained steadfast, largely because Lopez's propaganda papers had published the Treaty of the Triple Alliance in full. From the Paraguayan point of view, and, they, and every Paraguayan soldier knew what this treaty said by now, it left them no choice. If they gave up, it meant the destruction of their nation. Paraguayan nationalism, their powerful sense of collective identity, born from their unique history, was what kept them going, even under a miserable leader like Lopez. Even as they mourned their losses at Tuyuti, the Paraguayan people pitched into the war with renewed determination. If we give up now, our sons and brothers and fathers died for nothing. The sacrifice came to justify the cause. When his constant skirmishes failed to provoke an Allied response, Lopez decided to push the envelope. He was using a strategy that military theorists call active defense, which the Russians had used during the Siege of Sevastopol. The idea is that you seize a piece of ground the enemy can't afford to lose and let him beat himself bloody trying to recapture it. Lopez's first target was a patch of dry ground called Yataiti Corda, on the Allied right just in front of the Argentine position. On July 10, 1866, two battalions of Paraguayan infantry stormed Yataiti Corda, supported by a rocket battery. These rockets were the Congreve rocket design that the British Army used in the Napoleonic Wars and the War of 1812. These weren't no HIMARS rockets, like these weren't Katyushas, not modern rocket artillery. They were mostly inaccurate and ineffective, but they were very loud and very scary. The rockets actually lit the grass on fire, and the Paraguayans stormed through thick clouds of smoke to attack the Argentine positions. When the first attack failed on July 10th, Lopez tried again on July 11th, this time sending General Diaz with 2,500 men and another massive rocket barrage. This time, the smoke combined with a sandstorm blowing in from the Chaco to turn the landscape into something like Mordor. Mitre and Palnero brought Argentine reinforcements, and both sides fired their muskets almost blindly in the maelstrom. Flores came up to watch the fight, and he was almost killed by an artillery shell that hit the mud right next to him, but failed to explode. You can imagine the Grim Reaper right behind Flores going, Ah! So close! The ferocious little battle of Yataiti Cora cost the Paraguayans 400 men and the Argentines 250. Meanwhile, 
Lopez shifted his attention to the Allied left, where he planned to seize another piece of key ground and force the Allies to attack him. The Allied left flank was their weak point. Their lines of sight were blocked by a big tangle of forest called the Potrero Salce, with many small openings where the Paraguayans could move unseen. The only open path through the woods was a long causeway, 40 yards wide and 400 yards long, that was exposed to Paraguayan fire from three sides. This causeway was known as the Boqueron, but the Allies would remember it as the Funnel of Death. Lopez ordered General Diaz and George Thompson to build a new defensive position that the Allies would have to attack. The two men scouted out the area and decided to build a new trench, literally overnight, on the Allied end of the Boqueron. So on the night of July 13th, Thompson and 700 soldiers crept along the causeway to within earshot of the Allied lines. Thompson remembered. All the spades, shovels, and picks in the army, amounting to about 700, were sent down to Salce, and the greatest silence was enjoined on the men, lest they should let their spades and arms clank, as the enemy would inevitably hear them. The enemy's lines were so near that we could distinctly hear the laughing and coughing in their camp, but wonderfully enough, the enemy perceived nothing till the sun rose, when the whole length of the trench, 900 yards, was visible. So the Allies basically woke up the next morning and rubbed their eyes and saw this new Paraguayan earthwork right in their faces, only 500 yards away, with its guns pointed right at the Allied headquarters. It was an obvious threat that needed to be removed immediately before it got even stronger. But once again, Mitre dithered. Part of this was because General Osorio had taken ill and gone home to recover. Don't worry, he'll be back. And Mitre didn't trust the new Brazilian commander, General Polidoro. So once again, Allied High Command paralysis cost them valuable time. Time the Paraguayans used to bring up reinforcements and artillery, and even dig a second trench to defend the first. On July 16, 1866, Polidoro finally launched his assault on the far end of the Boqueron Causeway. Six Brazilian infantry battalions and two columns charged the first Paraguayan trench. After fighting for an hour and taking one-third of their number as casualties, they captured the position. But before they could move on to attack the second trench, the Brazilians were hit by the inevitable Paraguayan counterattacks. Four separate bayonet charges smashed into the newly taken trench, backed up by so many rocket barrages that it reminded observers of a fireworks show. Brazilian reinforcements poured in and the battle lasted the whole day. By nightfall on July 16th, Polidoro held the first trench, but had failed to carry the main Paraguayan position. Another assault would be required. The Allies spent July 17th preparing for the big attack. There was a deep sense of unease in the Allied camp, especially for Colonel Leon de Palleja. Only a few days earlier, his beloved dog, Compañero, had been blown up by a Paraguayan shell, and he was feeling pretty lonely. Palleja composed another of his letters to the Montevideo newspapers, writing of his wife back in the city, of his son wounded at Estero Bellaco, and of his birthplace back in Spain. He finished the letter by begging the Uruguayan people to remember their soldiers, fighting and dying in a faraway land. No one feels more closely the misfortune of death than he who writes these lines, but if one accepts the cause, one must accept the consequences. If one accepts the cause, 
one accepts the consequences and the sacrifice. July 18, 1866 was a clear blue day, and the Allied High Command was in a snarl once again. Boqueron was supposed to be a Brazilian show, but Flores decided that he wanted the glory today. So he ordered Colonel Palleja's units to attack. The small Uruguayan army had somehow been in the front line of every major battle of the war so far. Yate, Estero Bellaco, Tuyuti. Their numbers were small, their equipment was inadequate, and they were neglected both by their country and their two larger allies. But they attacked. Under fire from Paraguayan artillery and rockets, the Uruguayans swept forward, even as the bombardment ripped away at their ranks. Against all odds, they reached the main position and captured it. The Paraguayan defenders fled back into the bushes. The Battle of Bolqueron should have been over. The Allies had accomplished their objective. They had taken the Paraguayan positions at their end of the causeway. But Flores decided that this wasn't enough. He believed that he could capture the Paraguayan trench on the Salce Plain, closer to their main defensive line. But to get there, the Allied infantry would have to charge down the Boqueron Causeway, 40 yards wide, 400 yards long. Flores sent his men into the funnel of death. First up were the Argentine 2nd Corps, along with Palleja's battalions at the front. These Argentine units were National Guardsmen from the various provinces, not Buenos Aires this time, all the diverse regions that had never considered themselves part of a nation. Now they charged as one into a storm of Paraguayan artillery. As the men from the provinces rushed forward in that, into that hurricane of metal, they fought together, not as residents of Buenos Aires or Cordoba or Entre Rios or Mendoza, but as Argentines. And they died as Argentines. Hundreds fell there on their way down the funnel of death, but somehow they reached the Paraguayan lines. One Argentine officer remembered. The Paraguayan demons fought with desperation. Drunk with the frenzy of battle, they seemed like angry lions. They defended their trench with a blind courage, with bayonet thrusts, with stones and round shot that they threw by hand, with shovels full of sand flung into the faces of the assaulting troops, with rifle butts, with blows from ramrods, with sabers, with lances. Incredibly, the Argentines managed to capture the final trench. Exhausted and victorious, they cheered the alliance, their provinces, and their nation. Some of them even sat down and tried to eat lunch, but their celebration was premature. The underbrush erupted in musket fire, and six battalions of Paraguayan infantry came roaring back, led from the front by the omnipresent General José Díaz. The exhausted allies struggled to hold their position, but the storm of fire raining down on them from three sides was too much. They had to retreat back down the funnel of death, lashed the whole way by the artillery fire from General Bruges's guns. They hobbled back, a bunch of shell-shocked, heartbroken soldiers, covered in blood and mud and filth. They reported that the position could not be taken, that the funnel of death was impregnable. But Flores chastised them all as cowards, and ordered another attack. Argentine Colonel Luis Arguero literally told his commander goodbye forever before drawing his sword and once more leading his soldiers down the Boqueron Causeway. Once more, the Argentines went down the funnel of death, and they were blown to pieces, stumbling over the bodies of their comrades, pressing into crossfire that was hitting them from three sides, from muskets and cannonballs and shrapnel and grape shot, 
they never stood a chance. Colonel Arguerdo just managed to reach the lip of the trench and plant the Argentine flag on the parapet before he was cut down. Paraguayan Captain Centurion, who witnessed the battle, described the Boqueron as A vortex that swallowed masses of human flesh like an insatiable monster. It had taken the Allies immense amounts of blood and courage to capture the first and second Paraguayan trenches, but the trench at the far end of the Boqueron was a trench too far. When this last attack was shattered and the Allies retreated, the Battle of Boqueron, or the Battle of Salce, depending on who you ask, was over. The battlefield was a carpet of bodies, to some observers even worse than Tuyuti. They were just all concentrated on this causeway. Several war photographers managed to capture images of the horror, and for many countries, these photographs are as famous as the battlefield photos of Gettysburg or Antietam. The Paraguayans had lost 2,500 men, and the Allies had lost 5,000, a horrible price to pay for a few irrelevant trenches. Lopez had gotten exactly what he wanted, for the Allies to bleed themselves against his prepared positions. It had worked better than he had ever dreamed. As the Allied army soaked in the scale of their losses, they noticed that the Uruguayan soldiers were oddly quiet. They gathered silently around the corpse of Colonel Palleja, who had been killed leading his men down the funnel of death. Even as musket balls still ricocheted around them, the men of the Forgotten Army, the Uruguayan Army, stood up straight and presented arms as their commander's body was carried to the rear. The death of Colonel Palleja was an emotional event for everyone who knew him. One of the historians I read says that very few deaths in this war had such an emotional impact on everybody. Even the Paraguayans admired him as a courageous and gallant officer. The Paraguayan conscripts who had been drafted into the Uruguayan Army They they said, he looked out for us too. We never would have believed it. There is a very famous photograph of Palleja's corpse at Boqueron, with white, black, and brown Uruguayan soldiers staring at him like they lost a father. He had been that rare officer who looked out for his men, fought for them, stood up for them, when it felt like their government had forgotten them. He had been the only one who cared about them, and now he was gone. The heart went out of the Uruguayan army after Palleja's death. By the end of the year, their contingent was reduced to a token battalion, and Uruguay's role in the war from now on would be nominal. The sacrifice had proven too great for a cause they had never really believed in. Uruguay's will to continue the Paraguayan war died with Palleja in the funnel of death. The bloody disaster at Bolqueron was yet another failure of the Allied High Command. Mitre had failed to assert authority over Flores or the Brazilians, who failed to coordinate with each other. It was a confused mess of a battle, and no one even really knew who was in charge. The convoluted system the Triple Alliance Treaty had set up established no clear authority and no clear responsibility. 
everyone blamed everyone else, and the Allies trusted each other less every day. Didn't help that none of them were great generals. Like I keep saying, there's only one really good general in this war, and he doesn't show up until part four. If it sounds like I'm building that guy up, yes. Yes, I am. The biggest problem remained the lack of a unified Army-Navy commander. Ever since the invasion began, the Brazilian Navy had been kicking its heels at the mouth of the Paraguay doing jack. Despite Mitre constantly asking them to do something, anything, Admiral Tamandare refused to send his fleet upriver against the Paraguayan fortresses. Lopez had several tiers of defenses going up the Paraguay River. First, a small redoubt at Curuzu, then a much stronger position on a high bank called Curupaiti, before the fortress of Humaita itself, all of them armed with heavy guns. The Paraguayans also had a new toy, what the Allies called Machinas Infernales, or Infernal Machines, basically primitive naval mines, Lo basically like IEDs on the water. Lopez's men floated these mines down the river trying to blow up a Brazilian ironclad. The Infernal Machines didn't accomplish much, but they were cheap, they were simple, and they gave the Brazilian Navy a lot of heartburn. It was August 1866. After four months and three terrible battles, the Allied invasion of Paraguay had stalled. The economic strain and the horrible casualty lists damaged morale on the home front, where many Brazilian and Argentine citizens questioned whether the war was worth it, whether the cause of defeating Paraguay and Solano Lopez justified all this sacrifice. There was growing pressure to make peace, just sign a treaty and be done with it. The Allies needed a way forward, a plan to capture Humaita, defeat Lopez, win the war, before their citizens finally lost hope. Mitre proposed a ground campaign to bypass Lopez's defenses to the east and attack Humaita from the rear, from the landward side. Mitre liked his plan because it didn't require working with the Brazilian Navy. Admiral Tamandare wanted a naval campaign. His fleet, with army support, but mostly the fleet, would destroy the Paraguayan strongholds at Curuzu and Curupaiti, bypassing Lopez's defenses to the west and clearing the river towards Humaita. Tamandare liked his plan because it featured the Brazilian Navy and made him the star of the show. It was his bid to take control of the war away from Mitre. And Tamandare found a supporter in the new Brazilian commander, Manuel Marques de Sousa, the Baron of Porto Alegre. Porto Alegre was both Tamandare's cousin and a fellow member of Brazil's Liberal Party. With Brazil's power in the alliance growing and Mitre discredited due to his recent failures, he had no choice but to agree to their offensive up the Paraguay River. On September 2, 1866, Tamandare launched his attack. Five ironclads steamed up the river, lobbing shells into the Curuzu and Curupaiti positions, as Porto Alegre's troops disembarked just below Curuzu. The duel between gunboats and artillery damaged several Brazilian ships, and at around 2 p.m., the infernal machines struck a blow. The Brazilian ironclad Rio de Janeiro hit one of the Paraguayan naval mines and sank almost instantly, with no survivors from its 53-man crew. The next day, September 3rd, the Brazilian army assaulted the ramparts of Curuzu. But when they got to the enemy palisades, they realized, guess what? They had forgotten to bring the ladders. 
That's the second time this has happened in this war. Come on, guys. It, I mean, it shouldn't have happened once. <laughs> Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. But the Brazilians scaled the fortifications nevertheless. They were led by the Zuavos Bahianos, the black Brazilian units in their colorful uniforms. Captain Marcolino Jose Diaz, the capoeira master who commanded the second Zuavos, scaled the earthworks on the shoulders of one of his men. He fought hand-to-hand -hand with the Paraguayans, putting his martial arts to good use, before planting his nation's standard and yelling, Here is the black Bahian Zuavo! The Battle of Curuzu turned in the Allied favor when something unusual happened. The Paraguayan 10th Battalion, full of raw recruits, barely fired a shot before panicking and routing. Normally this was not a surprise. Raw recruits panic and run. That happens. But this was very unusual for the Paraguayan army. Units just didn't run away like this. They were supposed to fight to the death. Curuzu was the most important Allied victory since they had crossed the Parana River. For the cost of 800 men, the Brazilians had broken the first line of Lopez's defenses. Dom Pedro II promoted Porto Alegre to Viscount. Mitre was jealous because it was a Brazilian victory, and Tamandari was jealous of his cousin because it was an army victory. So now even family members are arguing. <laughs> it's not going well, guys. Porto Alegre's victory came with an asterisk. For the moment, for just a moment, the road to Humaita was wide open. The Paraguayan defenses at Curupaiti, the second line of defense, had very strong river defenses, but very poor defenses on the landward side. If Porto Alegre had shown initiative and moved quickly, he might have captured Curupaiti and avoided what was to come. But instead, he hesitated, and the Paraguayans, again, used the time given by the Allied delays to recover. Still, after a week, 20,000 Allied soldiers, half Brazilian, half Argentine, were assembling for the assault on Curupaiti, the attack that would clear the way to Humaita and break Lopez's chokehold on the river, the victory that would finally end the war. And then, out of nowhere, a Paraguayan officer approached the Allied lines with a white flag. He carried a simple message. An invitation from President Lopez to President Mitre for a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Francisco Solano Lopez wanted to talk. This was the last thing anyone had expected. The Allies were like, he, what, he, 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 wants, he wants to talk? Does he want peace? Is this our chance to end the war? The rumors spread through the ranks and spirits lifted. Guys, this might be it. We might get to go home. Bartolome Mitre was thunderstruck. He met with Flores and General Polidoro and was like, Dudes, should, should we talk to him? Polidoro flatly refused. No, none of the Brazilian commanders, not even Tamandare, had the authority to negotiate with Lopez. They had been explicitly ordered not to. Flores was like, well, we can at least hear him out. So Mitre agreed to meet Lopez at 9 a.m. the next day, September 11th, between the two armies at the Ataiti Cora. So, was Lopez really interested in negotiating with the Triple Alliance? Maybe ending the war? Did he want peace? Maybe. Maybe he felt like his back was to the wall. See, just after the Battle of Curuzu, 
Lopez ordered a drastic punishment for the disgraced 10th Battalion. Fully half the battalion's officers were executed. They had to draw straws to figure out which one. And the soldiers had to undergo the ancient Roman practice of decimation, where one out of every ten men was pulled from the ranks and executed in front of his comrades. Yeah, like I said, he's getting worse. We're reaching Joseph Stalin levels at this point. But I think there's something else. George Thompson said that Lopez was thrown into depression by the defeat at Curuzu. The route of the 10th Battalion might have shown Lopez that even Paraguayan morale had limits, that his army's vaunted willpower was reaching its breaking point. Maybe it was time to negotiate. But Lopez also might have been trying to buy time. Right after Curuzu, he had sent Thompson to inspect the Paraguayan defenses at Curupaiti. George Thompson came back and said, Boss, right now those defenses are really weak. I can make this position impregnable, but I need time. Give me time. So Lopez sent his invitation to Mitre for a peace talk, but he also gave Thompson 5,000 men, led by General Diaz, and they got to work, digging trenches, building bunkers, laying traps and obstacles. So as his soldiers prepared their last stand at Kurupaiti, Lopez rode to Yataiti Kora. Lopez arrived at the meeting site first, having had a couple of stiff drinks on the way to settle his nerves. Mitre and Flores arrived from the Allied lines to the south. Lopez wore a glitzy general's uniform and a massive poncho. Mitre wore a battered old soldier's uniform with a straw sombrero. The meeting had barely begun before Lopez pissed Flores off, saying that he had betrayed his nation by becoming a Brazilian puppet. Whether this was intentional or not, the hot-headed Flores stormed off, leaving Lopez and Mitre alone. This meeting was one of the strangest, most dramatic events in the entire war. Like, how often does this kind of thing happen? Imagine Eisenhower having a sit-down with Hitler just before D-Day. The Marshal President of Paraguay and the Argentine President slash Allied Supreme Commander, face-to-face -face for the first time since the war began, sat down to discuss peace. Lopez and Mitre talked for almost five hours, and God to be a fly on that wall, because we have no idea what exactly they said. This wasn't the first time they'd met. The two men had been acquainted before the war. There had been, been diplomatic missions. Lopez had been to Buenos Aires and met Mitre several times. The conversation ranged across various topics, from European politics, to the strengths and weaknesses of each army, to literature, to history, and finally the war. Lopez told Mitre that he should abandon the unholy alliance with Brazil and join Paraguay against the empire. Hey look, a bunch of Argentines agree with me. Maybe there could be some border adjustments in Argentina's favor. We'll give you something as long as you can make peace with us and join us against Brazil. Maybe a deal could be worked out that could end this insanity, end the war, right here and now. But Mitre told Lopez that his hands were bound by the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. He couldn't make any deal without the consent of all three powers. And for peace to even be on the table, Lopez had to leave Paraguay. That was the one condition the treaty required. Then Mitre got emotional. Maybe he even used Lopez's familiar nickname, Panchito, see reason. Surely your country is more important than your own power. Just 
if you just leave, Paraguay will be left alone. If you just leave the country, like you, it's you versus your entire country. What's you can't believe that you're more important. Lopez turned pale and looked at his feet. For just a moment, he seemed to realize the gravity of the disaster into which he had led his country, the fate that awaited him and all of them. But then he looked up, nodded, and the moment was gone. Lopez said, Such conditions your excellency can only dictate over my dead body in the most distant trench works of Paraguay. Which... I'm just going to say, sometimes history does your foreshadowing for you. There could be no Paraguay without Lopez, and there could be no Lopez without Paraguay. He would never leave. Bartolome Mitre wanted to make a deal. He was a canny politician, a man who believed in compromise and negotiation. But out of the four national leaders in this terrible war, the only one who could end it now was the only one who was not at Yetaiti Cora. Not Mitre, not Flores, not even Lopez. It was Dom Pedro II. Dom Pedro didn't see the war in terms of politics or power or even glory. He saw it in terms of good versus evil. Pedro saw Lopez as the personification of tyranny and militarism, the opposite of progress and liberalism. He hated Lopez like a paladin who sees his opponent as a force of darkness. Much like Lopez saw himself as the personification of Paraguay, Pedro saw himself as the personification of Brazil, and Lopez's attack on Brazil was an attack on Pedro himself. He saw the war as a contest, personal contest, between himself and the Paraguayan dictator. At about this same time, Pedro wrote, Peace is being spoken of, but I shall not make peace with Lopez, and public opinion is with me. And he wasn't wrong. At this time period, Brazilian nationalism was based on the monarchy. Brazil's soldiers, its politicians, its people, even many slaves, did see the emperor as the personification of their nation. They followed where he led. And this brings us to the final reason Dom Pedro had to destroy Lopez's regime. He had invested too much into the war to give up now, to consolidate his country under the monarchy, to build his nation. Brazil needed the decisive victory over the forces of darkness. All my men, all my soldiers and sailors can't have died for nothing. The sacrifices of the Paraguayan War were coming to justify the Brazilian national cause. Even though he was a thousand miles away, Dom Pedro was the critical player at the meeting at Yataiti Cora. He would never agree to a peace deal that did not remove Lopez from power. And without Brazil's consent, Mitre could negotiate nothing. There was no chance for peace today. At the end of their meeting, Lopez and Mitre exchanged gifts, shook hands, and rode away, never to meet again. And the Paraguayan War continued. Whether or not Lopez ever intended to make peace, he had given George Thompson valuable time, and the British engineer used it well. By September 21st, he reported to Lopez that the Kurupaiti position was very strong, and this was an understatement. The Paraguayan soldiers, with Thompson directing them and Diaz driving them, had worked around the clock to turn Kurupaiti into a fortress. The Allied army would have to cross an open floodplain, a bañado, 
with the river to their left and a lake to their right, channeling them into the kill zone. The Paraguayans dug a trench across the plain, which they had flooded with water. In front of and behind the trench, they had set up abatis, obstacles made of cut-up trees. So these enormous like barbed-wired entanglements made from Paraguayan trees. Finally, there was the main Paraguayan line, a 12-foot-high wooden palisade topped with an earthwork manned by 5,000 men and 49 heavy guns. This was a death trap. Mitre looked at this position and said, Nope. He said the Allies should find any other way forward. But Porto Alegre and Tamandare, the Brazilians, insisted that Curupaiti had to be attacked. Tamandare bragged that his naval guns would level the defenses with a preliminary bombardment, turning the battle into a cakewalk. Guys, I'll take care of that. I'll blow them up. You just gotta walk right through. Mitre, as ground commander, could have refused to participate. He could have said, we're not doing this. But he was losing control over the Allied war effort. His lack of action since May and his recent conversation with Lopez had infuriated the Brazilians, who chafed at what they saw as Argentine duplicity. For diplomatic and political reasons, Mitre felt like he had to agree to the attack on Curupaiti. He would later claim that it had been out of his hands, or maybe that's just what he told himself. The Allied attack was planned for September 22nd. 20,000 men would attack en masse. The Brazilians in two columns to the left, the Argentines in two columns to the right. This was one of the only battles where Argentines, not Brazilians, made up the majority of the forces involved. Leading the charge were the bright young volunteers of Buenos Aires, the sons of the city, the best young men of their generation. The night before the battle, many of the Argentines had a sense of impending doom. Colonel Manuel Rossetti, the son of Italian immigrants, told his friends that he had a premonition of his own death. Then there was 21-year-old Captain Dominguito Sarmiento, son of the Argentine ambassador to the United States, the shy, emotional young man who wrote letters constantly reassuring his terrified mother. He made references to what he called his lucky star, telling his mom over and over over all these months that he was going to make it home. But his writing struck a different tone on September 21st. War is a game of chance, and fortune can smile on or abandon whoever exposes himself to enemy fire. The night before the Battle of Curupaiti, Dominguito felt his lucky star fading. The Allied assault began at dawn on September 22, 1866. Tamandare moved his ironclads upriver and began his bombardment. They hammered away for two hours before they raised the signal for the ground troops to attack. But the cliffs of Curupaiti had been too high for the Brazilian naval gunners to see the effects of their fire. They just had to sort of hope they were hitting their targets. They weren't. The Brazilian naval bombardment completely overshot the Paraguayan trenches. Drums rolled and bugles blared as 12,000 Argentine and 8,000 Brazilian soldiers advanced in long, neat lines like they were on a parade ground. They outnumbered Diaz's defenders by four to one. Some of them carried ladders and engineering equipment to cross the Paraguayan obstacles. The soldiers cheered and sang with enthusiasm seeing this beautiful sight looking Left to right, such a mighty army, so beautiful, so well-dressed and well-uniformed and well-armed, seemed invincible. Then the Paraguayans opened fire. 
and it was clear that Tamandare's bombardment had failed. The Allied infantry sloshed forward across the muddy Banyado into a growing blizzard of shot and shell. They slipped and stumbled desperately through the puddles, weighed down by their equipment and their heavy kits. Then they reached the obstacles and all order disintegrated. Men were cut down in the abatis trees and hung like scarecrows. They swam the waterlogged trench and climbed over the other side, only to find more abatis and finally the twelve-foot-high palisades. Few, very few of them even got close. Something like only 60 men reached the top of the Paraguayan defenses. The rest of them were cut down or pinned down into obstacles. The Paraguayan defenders blazed away with their muskets and blasted canister from their massive 68-pounder guns. Hidden batteries from the swamps caught the Allies in a crossfire, slicing across the lines through mud and flesh and bone. The Paraguayans cheered and bellowed with glorious fury. This was their revenge for Tuyuti. Diaz rode on horseback along the lines, rallying his men. He and George Thompson had turned Kurupaiti into a shooting gallery. The Allied columns were blown away. They didn't stand a chance. The Argentines, in totally open ground with no cover, got the worst of it. The 17-year-old color bearer, Mariano Grandoli, took 14 separate wounds before falling dead, wrapped in the Argentine flag. An officer from Santa Fe province, Captain Martin Vinales, was carried back missing an arm. He told his comrades, It is nothing, just one arm less. My country deserves more. The Argentine officers fell like wheat before the scythe. Colonel Charlione, commander of the Foreign Legion, hero of the Raid on Corrientes, a Crimean War veteran, was cut down by three musket balls. He lost 80% of his brigade. Colonel Rossetti, who had predicted his death, fell at the head of his men. And Dominguito Sarmiento had his Achilles tendon torn apart by grape shot. His friends gathered around him in sorrow as he bled to death, his lucky star fading into the mud of Kurupaiti a name Argentines would rue for generations to come. After two agonizing hours, the order came to retreat. They weren't accomplishing anything. The, the columns were just foundering in these obstacles and just dying in droves. But somehow the wires got crossed, and another order told them to turn around and attack again. Their commanders agreed that it was madness, but they complied. The broken Allied command structure had once again failed its soldiers. One more time, the Argentines and Brazilians tried to claw their way across that bloody, shattered landscape, and one more time they were torn to shreds by point-blank musket fire and endless rounds of canister. At 4 p.m., Mitre ordered the final retreat. Just after the battle was over, General Palnero rode up to a blood-covered field officer and asked for the location of the 1st Division. Like, hey, where'd the 1st Division go? The officer replied, Here it is, sir. Four flags, escorted by 60 men. As darkness fell, the Paraguayans slipped out to loot the battlefield. Thompson later claimed that only half a dozen Allied prisoners were taken at Kurupaiti. Most of the wounded were finished off with the bayonet. The Paraguayans were out of mercy. They recovered hundreds of rifles and thousands of uniforms from the Allied dead, so that by, within a month, several battalions of the Paraguayan army were outfitted in Argentine and Brazilian uniforms. Diaz also allowed his men to bind the enemy corpses together and toss them in the rivers, where they floated like grim bouquets in full view of the Allied army. 
I don't think that was necessary. The Battle of Kurupaiti was Paraguay's greatest victory of the war. They lost fewer than 100 men killed and wounded, while inflicting at least 4,000 Allied casualties and probably many more. The Argentines had been smashed, losing 50% of all troops engaged, with hideous losses among the junior officers. If the sons of Asuncion died at Tuyuti, the sons of Buenos Aires died at Kurupaiti. When the, when the news arrived a week later, the entire city went into mourning. The Brazilians also suffered heavily, but one casualty was unusual. She was 13-year-old Maria Francisca de Concicao, who had followed her boyfriend to war. He had been killed at Curuzu, and she had put on his uniform and been wounded in the following battle. The Brazilian soldiers adopted her as one of their own, the heroine of Curupaiti. But Kurupaiti was to Argentina what World War I's Battle of the Somme was to Britain. It shattered home front morale. For the first time, units from all the Argentine provinces, Buenos Aires and the interior, had taken part together and suffered together in the same miserable slaughter. The news hit Corrientes, Entre Rios, Santa Fe, Mendoza, Cordoba, San Juan, and Buenos Aires, whose best and brightest had died in the mud. It hit the whole country at once, and every province was consumed in a simultaneous outpouring of sorrow. Argentina was united for the first time in grief. And they were united in another way. Rebellions broke out in the outlying provinces. Governors refused to send more men to the front. The Buenos Aires newspapers railed against the betrayal of their Brazilian allies, the bungling of Mitre, and the toll this war had wreaked on their nation. Even members of Mitre's own centralist party were calling for peace. Bartolome Mitre had gotten his wish in a way he never wanted. His nation was united against the war. Be careful what you wish for. The Battle of Kurupaiti was the last great battle of 1866. For the Paraguayans, it was a massive triumph, a vindication of Lopez's strategy. For six months, he had stood off the invasion of his country against much larger countries with many more resources, and he was winning. The Allies had suffered a catastrophic defeat that caused political upheavals in all three nations. The divisions between them grew deeper than ever, and they halted all military operations for almost a year. Their armies sat, impotent, paralyzed, stalemated, only miles away from their objective, Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South. It seemed like Lopez's strategy was paying off after all. Despite the enormous Allied advantages in men and materiel, despite his country's isolation and hardships and suffering, despite all his stupid dictator shenanigans, maybe, just maybe, there was hope for Paraguayan victory after all. Cordales, Redención Island, Estero Bellaco, Tuyuti, Boqueron, Curuzú, Curupaiti. The battles of 1866 did not fundamentally change the military situation. From an objective standpoint, they accomplished nothing except to run up the casualty list, but they entered the collective memory of the nations that fought them. 
Uruguay gained a selfless martyr in Colonel Palleja, a symbol of their immigrant origins, a man who had given everything for his adopted country. Brazil gained heroes, patrons for their service, a military legend that endures to this day. Argentina gained its unity, but at a cost no one ever imagined could be so high. And Paraguay, despite its terrible losses at Tuyuti, gained great victories at Boqueron and Curupaiti, the memory of which gave them hope and kept them fighting, even as they approached their inevitable destruction. Each country took its sacrifices differently. For Uruguay and Argentina, Boqueron and Curupaiti almost knocked them out of the war. To them, the cause was ultimately not worth the sacrifice. From this point on, they would fade into the background. But for Brazil and Paraguay, the sacrifices were coming to justify the cause. The more Brazil suffered, the more they agreed with their emperor that Lopez's regime must be destroyed. The more Paraguay suffered, the more determined they became to resist to the bitter end. Both countries gritted their teeth, dug in their heels, and ground their soldiers into the funnel of death that this war had become. We've given up too much to back down now. My son, my brother, my father, my husband, my daughter can't have died for nothing. What had started as a petty border dispute, a proxy war in Uruguay, had spiraled out of control into a war of extremes. Dom Pedro II and Francisco Solano Lopez would accept nothing less. The sacrifices of their country demanded nothing less than total victory or total defeat. An all-or-nothing mindset that would drag the Paraguayan War down the road to Armageddon. The story of the Paraguayan War will continue in our next episode, The Paraguayan War Part 4, Gibraltar of the South. We will see the Allies launch the long, bitter campaign to capture the fortress of Humaita, and along the way we'll look at how these countries waged war, focusing on economies and societies, mobilization and total war, and the eternal question of national will. How the Paraguayan War is relevant to the modern day, and modern conflicts, in more ways than you might imagine. But before that, I have a short round for you. This is about a small campaign that's been going on this whole time, really far away from the main action. The Brazilian attempt to reconquer Mato Grosso, which Paraguay occupied at the beginning of this war. And this will also answer a question you might have had. You might be like, looking at a map, you might be like, James, look at that long border between Paraguay and Brazil. Why don't the Allies try to attack anywhere else besides the rivers? <laughs> this is why. It's time to become reacquainted with our old friend, the Iron Hand of Logistics. So see you in about, probably about a week, for a Paraguayan War Part 3.5, Brazilian Odyssey, aka The Retreat from Laguna. And a few weeks after that, for Paraguayan War Part 4, Gibraltar of the South, where we finally meet that actually good general I've been talking about this whole time. See you then on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>